Hi, Hurricane fans. Joe Zagacki here for UPS. Your customers want more from your business. You've got to make more happen, whether they're in Miami or on the other side of the world, globally or locally. UPS is building solutions to help businesses give their customers exactly what they want. More made easy. UPS, official logistics company of Miami Athletics. The Behind the You podcast, legends have graced this podcast almost week after week, and I've done my research, and, and I can definitively say we've got another one. Michelle Atherley, who is now technically, I guess, your Canes alum, right? I am. Oh, my gosh. That's weird. Don't, let's not go there yet. <laughs> yeah, we're, well, actually, we're going to talk about that, but Michelle Atherley, who's all everything, heptathlete, pentathlete for the University of Miami track and field team, indoor and outdoor. He's got more honors and awards that we're going to get into at some point during this. I think I have a whole page just dedicated to your honors, but an accomplished career, more than accomplished. I don't even have the right words to describe it. Congratulations, and, and thank you for taking the time to do this. Yeah, thank you. I'm so glad to be here and talk with you and answer all the questions. Let everybody know exactly who I am, what I do, and why my name is Miss Do It All. So let's do it. Why is that? It's right. That was one of the first things. Give it to me. Miss underscore I underscore do underscore it underscore all. Miss Do It All. Is that life? Is that track? Is that everything? And did you give it to yourself? Did someone give it to you? Give me the background on it. Yeah, I just gave it to myself, honestly, because coming into college, I at first, like in high school, I didn't know what the multi was, what the heptathlon was. And so somebody had to tell me. And so I kind of went through that process when everybody asked me, oh, what do you do? Do you run the hundred? And I'm like, no, I actually do seven events. <laughs> and they're like, what? Oh my gosh, what is that? Or somebody asked me, oh, do you do the 5k? And I have to say, no, um, not quite, but I do the 800 plus X, Y, and Z. And so I ended up just saying, I do it all. You know, if you can think about it, I'm going to do it. And then obviously if they throw out some crazy like Kobo, I'll, I'll be like, not quite, not quite. But yeah, that's just kind of where it came from. And it stuck. And it's been like that since I don't even know when I, when I change it, like sophomore year, college, something like that. But yeah, it's just kind of stuck and it kind of fits what I do. It does. So you were or were not a heptathlete in high school? I was not. So they don't have the multi um, in high school unless you do like AAU track, summer club track, which I didn't do until my senior year of high school. So I didn't really know what it was. I just kind of did random events for my high school. We weren't really much of any good, but <laughs> um, I enjoyed it. And my coaches were awesome. So yeah, it's just kind of flowed from there. So your, I think your high school coach said you were a hurdler to start, maybe? I was, yeah. I started with the hurdles. I knew that I didn't want to do any long distance. I was like, I, I can't. Two miles? Yikes. So I was a hurdler, high jumper to begin with, and those were my two first loves. So your coach said, I think, so you're a hurdler, and then he taught you long and triple, and he said that he hadn't really seen an athlete like you. You picked it up easily. So he said it came easy to you. Did you think it came easy to you? I think so. I think we jammed a lot. So you're talking about when I uh, got into my senior year of high school, I went and did uh, AAU track. So I found a club who um, coached my sister, who actually did track at USF, and um, he coached in, Bo in West Palm Beach. So I had to drive almost every weekend back and forth to train with him but it was worth it because like he said he taught me 
all the jumps, everything that I needed to do to be a multi-athlete. Um, and we jam-packed everything in a year, as much as we could before heading off to college. And and I did. I did a triple jump. I did long jump. And I improved my high jump. I mean, it was it was amazing. It was a great but difficult process. So wait a second. Wait. So I, I know this from doing my research. So you grew up in Port Charlotte, correct? Yeah. Well, that's north of Fort, where is that? North of Port Myers? I'm on, yeah, the, I'm on the right coast. Right, so you're on the west coast of Florida, and you drove two and a half hours across the state to West Palm Beach to train. Yeah, it did. Club track does not exist where I, I grew up, so that was not an option. <laughs> and so what I, what I looked for the best way to kind of, when somebody told me I can go to college for free to run, to do what I enjoy doing every day in high school, I was like, of course. And so I wanted to make the best of that, and my best chance was being a multi. And so how did I do that? I had to learn all of the events, and he was my best shot. And you connected with him how again? He was like my sister's AAU coach when she so she grew up in West Palm Beach and she worked with him, but we're a couple years apart. So, I mean, I didn't do track when she did track. I just watched and I was like, I'm never doing that. <laughs> but she kind of connected us and then it, it grew from there. So how often were you making that trip? Too many times to even count. I mean... I would stay there with my sister um, through the summer. And then even on school weekends, like I would drive over there just because to get an extra training. I would go over there for a good meet if I needed to get some good competition to get some good reps in. I would drive over to this coast because, you know, all these Miami schools are amazing. So, yeah, I don't know. It was it was just so often. I just remember those long trips back and forth. <laughs> So you mentioned before that you thought multi was the best way to get to school, right? If, so, if I, oh, I can go to school and do this and go to free, great. So why weren't you just a hurdler? Why was it multi? Who either introduced you to it, planted that seed? Why did that become sort of the path? Yeah, so after I got really interested in track and field and I was like, okay, I want to like pursue this more. It turns out that my high school coach who, she was the head coach, she did cross country, she did everything. She wasn't there that often, but she was like, you know, Michelle, I was a heptathlete. I was like, what is that? <laughs> what is that? And so she explained it. And then that's how it kind of stuck in my brain. And that's when I transferred it to my AAU coach. And I was like, this sounds like something I can do. And he was like, you know what, you can because you pick up things quickly. You know, you've done all these events already. I mean, you know, if you ask anybody who does track in high school, you was doing everything. You was running everything. You was jumping, you know. So it's just kind of how it went. And I just happened to be above average in most of the events. So before that, you did not have any thoughts? of going to college as a track athlete? I did not. I actually did gymnastics for a really long time, and that was my goal. But again, that the resources weren't were there where I grew up. So it kind of didn't work out as I went into high school, and I kind of explored my other options. I love sports in general. But yeah, track was never on my radar until maybe junior year of high school. So literally in two years, you go from like never running track, never doing multis to now you're a track, you're, you're a scholarship athlete that actually ultimately started in the SEC at Auburn. But literally that occurs in two years? Yeah. It does. It, yeah, very fast. <laughs> That's wild. Man, that is wild. So I, I did want to start with this because if you weren't familiar with multis, I'm not familiar with multis. I'm sure a lot of people who are listening, I'm sure if the track people know. So this is a little bit of an educational exercise and then a, a quick put you on the spot. I want all the events of the heptathlon. I want all the events of the pentathlon. Yeah, so the pen is five events, right? So you have the 60-meter hurdles, you have the high jump, you have long jump, um, yeah, long jump, you have the shot put, and you have the 800. And that all happens in one day. So one single competition, you go for hours at a time, 30-minute intervals between each event, and you're done. The heptathlon is seven events split up into two days. You have four events on the first day, three events on the second day. The first day is the 100 hurdles, the high jump, the shot put, and the 200. 
And each of those has about 30 minutes. You can have some leeway time depending if it's air time, you know, stuff like that. But you finish those events in one day, all the points get added up, and then you go into the second day. On the second day is the uh, long jump, the javelin, and the 800. And those, again, 30-minute intervals, the 800 sometimes will have a log longer gap. Again, just depends on where you're competing. And then the points from both days get added up. And the one with the most points is the winner. And so you embrace the grind? I do. It's a good time. I promise. <laughs> we look like we're dying, but it's a good time. <laughs> we look like we're dying, but we're not. You're in such great shape. You're never dying. <laughs> exactly. It's always a breeze. <laughs> exactly. We, we die on the practice, at practice, on the track to look good on, on competition day. I got you. So what's the event that you're like, that's my deal? Like, I, I kill this event every time. I love it. It's, I know, like, it's mine. People ask me that a lot, you know, and I, I always say it depends on the day. It depends. But like I said, I was a hurdler, high jumper at heart. That's what I started with. And so it goes back and forth between those two days. You know, I could have a bomb hurdle day and, and that's my solid event. That's where I get a lot of my points or I can have a great high jump day and I'm over here jumping out the gym. So <laughs> either of those is where my bed and butter could lie. All right. So then what's the one that's like, man, I don't ever want to do this again. I'm glad it's <laughs> over. You know, it has to be. The 800, I mean, people are always shocked because I, I'm compared to others, a good 800 runner. I'm a strong 800 runner, but it's like every single time before I run, I get like, not nervous at all, but I'm just like, oh my gosh, I'm about to die. Like, <laughs> So what's the fear that it's, it's a, not going to make it to the finish? No, not, not even that. I just know that I'm going to be so tired, right? I'm going to have to give my all. And you reach this kind of threshold that you, you try to practice through, right? You go through your reps and practice so that you can increase that threshold. But you know, every time you're gonna run the 800, you're gonna reach it and you're gonna have to push through it. And it's just that knowing and just that anticipation, honestly, that rings that kind of, I guess, adrenaline. It's kind of like a, a sickening amount of adrenaline. <laughs> Any good stories from like, you know, you first did the shot or the javelin and you just like threw it the wrong way or you hit somebody or, you know, spun in circles and, you know, coach was running for their, for their life? You know, the javelin has always been just one of my struggle events. So I just remember the first time I picked up a jab was, it was tragic. I don't know. It, it does this thing. If you don't throw it right, it'll flip. The tail end will flip and it'll land on the tail rather than the tip. And that's not good because you could break the jab. You could hit somebody. It could go crazy. And that's exactly what happened the first time I threw that thing. <laughs> it went straight up in the air, straight down on the tip. And I was like, whoa, that's not supposed to happen. <laughs> And the shot, you were good right up on your neck, right? Spinning, doing, was it a 180, a 360? How many, what, what, how many spins is it? You know, there's different techniques. I do the glide. So I, I just glide back and I turn the foot. So that's part of your jumping technique, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> All right. So this is um, something that I'm curious about. I know how athletes are, right? In college, very regimented. You're now done with college. I am. <laughs> and you've been done for a few weeks. So I just want to know how you're doing. I'm doing great, honestly. I'm just years of this. How long have I been at it? Six years? Oh my goodness. It stuck with me. I think it's part of like just how I live my life. My everyday life is I'm a pretty on-the-go person and I have everything planned out. My calendar always looks crazy, but of course right now it's off-season. So I have plenty of time to do whatever I want, but it didn't hit me as hard as I think it hits other people. It's like, what do I do with all this time? I don't know. I'm going crazy. But 
I have a lot of hobbies. I, I love to paint. I love to do plant stuff. <laughs> um, I have two dogs, so that keeps me busy. And so I just am enjoying this time focusing on other things than, you know, making sure I'm attracted at the right time or doing things that I have to do for school and stuff like that. So a, a, a former boss of mine said, if it's important to you, you'll find time for it. And I know what it's like to be an athlete. You're just, you know, it's you wake up, it's training or tutoring, it's eating, it, go to training hall, it's classes, it's meets, et cetera. Where did you cultivate these hobbies? Honestly, mostly through Corona. Since that giant break, we were kind of just, again, thrust into this, this free time, this time of isolation. So before that, honestly, I don't know what I did. I think I probably watched Netflix whenever I had the opportunity. Um, and that was my downtime because, yeah, I think once I, I found that during that off time during quarantine, um, I was really able to kind of focus on, okay, this is what helps me relieve stress. And then again, when I got back into track, I made time for it. I, I knew that it was a priority, something to keep my mind off of going crazy, <laughs> just on the day-to-day -day routine of making sure I'm always doing what I need to do, where I need to be and stuff like that. So yeah, I think now you just have to carve out time. You just have to do it. Is that so I, this is a podcast, so it's an audio thing. But just for me, is that some of your work behind you? Yes, these are some of my paintings. <laughs> I do all types Can I commission of you? Can I commission you to make something? <laughs> Of course, of course. I'm, people tell me I should sell it, so maybe I'll get into that now that you know I'm out of the NCAA. Well, well, it doesn't matter. You might you might have been able to do it now. I know. Listen, I'm I'm still traumatized from the years of like, no, you can't do that. So I just forget that people have all this freedom now. But yeah, so I I think I'm gonna try to sell them. Okay, excellent. So I always like for people that listen to understand the dedication and sacrifice it takes to be a student athlete. And then on top of that, one who is a great student athlete, how they push themselves. So can you give people an example of what we just talked about? When you were training, when you were in season, a day in the life of Michelle Atherley, from get up to go to sleep, what that day was like? Yeah. So again, as a multi, I just have so many events to fit in. So I'll take you, I think I did a day in the life on like a Monday, which is one of my busier days. Um, you wake up depending on the time of the year, but let's say we have 6.30 waits, 6.30 a.m. Um, I'll wake up at maybe 5.30, get ready, leave at five, get to the school a little bit early so I can do pre-treatment, get nice and warmed up for waits. Um, we start at 6.30, go for about an hour, and then I'll eat a snack for 15 minutes or so. I'll go to shot put practice right after maybe, I don't know, 8.30 or so, do shot put practice for about 45 minutes. And then I'll have a good amount of break where I'll eat lunch, late breakfast, and then a snack, sometimes lunch. And then I will go get ready for the afternoon practice. So then I'll go to, again, warm up, go and do some prehab, do hot packs, things like that. Go out to practice around 12.30 or so, 12 o'clock, depending, you know, just whenever, whatever the day entails. And then I usually have one event to practice for a couple hours, two hours or so. Then I'll go to the next event, practice for another hour. I don't know, I'm, I'm leaving around 3.30-ish, 3 o'clock. And then I have to go get treatment. So I'll, I'll make sure my muscles are recovered. I'll do some stretches. I'll do, um, I don't know, whatever recovery thing I need to do for my knees, for my hamstrings, whatever is bothering that day. Maybe I'll do the cold tuck. And then I'll go home, get home around 5.30 or so. And then I usually have class at 6.30 because I do night classes since, I don't know, I've done it for a really long time, senior year, undergrad. And then... I do that until like 9.30 p.m. I'll study 
for about an hour. I'm tired already. I'm already my eye, my eye, my body's not heavy. My eyes got heavy just listening to it. Yeah, yeah. So I try. I mean, it's honestly sometimes I'm like in class struggling. Not gonna lie, my eyes were. I'll be like, professor, I'm sorry, I'm here. <laughs> I promise. But yeah, by by nine thirty, I try to get in a good amount of studying mixed in with dinner. So I'll I'll eat at the same time, and then I try to go to bed because I usually have practice at like I don't know maybe twelve the next day. On a Tuesday. So because you do more events, you practice more, you have to practice more things or have to practice more time. Yeah. So I'll do shot put, I'll do hurdles and I'll do high jump all in one day. Just for practice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's a lot. So you like looking at the, are you looking at the other ones, like the sprinters and just going, you have it so easy. You just got to run in a straight line for a hundred meters. That's come on. Listen, maybe put in their own type of work. I can't even imagine what it takes to run that fast, but yeah, I know that I've been there all day. So, um, I try to sneak in a nap if I have a longer break in the morning, but try not to, you know, go into practice really tired, but. Are you a power napper or a long napper? No, I'm a power napper. It's a long nap. I'm sleeping. <laughs> I'm going to bed. So I say I'm a long napper. I don't. I haven't mastered the power napping thing. It's a good time. You wake up and you're like, that was just enough. <laughs> yeah, I, I wake up after two hours and I'm like, that was the best. <laughs> <laughs> now, we should also add that you got your master's at Miami, correct? In one year or two years? So I am actually finishing in my second master's now. I did my first one in a year and then my second one I'm about to do in a year. Right. So we did that whole schedule going to class while getting your master, dual master's, right? In public admin and international public admin, correct? Yep. Mm -hmm. And by the way, forget all the accomplishments, 3.85 GPA. So you weren't sleeping through class too much, Michelle. Don't lie to me. <laughs> yeah. It took me a while to get there. Honestly, when I first transferred, it was kind of difficult to adjust to just the way of classes and, and then the schedule of practice, honestly. But once I like saw myself, like I can't, hold on, my GPA is what? Because I just did really bad in one class. I was like, I can't, I can't do that. So I just made sure to stay on top of it. And then eventually when I got into my master's programs, it was something that I really enjoyed, something I was actually interested in. And it made it so much easier to stay on top of. And what was your under, your undergraduate was? Political science. So your political science, public admin. So what's the interest? Where do you think that takes you? Both deal with government. So I am really interested in um, nonprofit organizations and how they kind of work with government as well as how they work with corporations. So I, I would like to be that tie between private entities and, and nonprofit organizations. You finish with this, your, your storied career and you kind of save the best for last. You go to the Olympic trials and you set a new personal best. You set a Canes track record in the heptathlon, but you also what, came in fourth, right? So you just missed the cut. I did, yes. How do you balance the two, right? A tremendous accomplishment in terms of what you accomplished, you know, doing what you did and setting records at the biggest stage, yet I'm sure your desire was to make Tokyo. How, you do how do you balance your emotions surrounding that? How have you? Because it was most recently. Yeah, I am somebody who doesn't focus on the placement, the awards, the medals. I focus on my performance. Am I happy? Do I think I executed as best as I could? And that's what I focused on the most on that meet. I knew that coming out of NCAAs, that was not my best performance by far. I, I just had too many hiccups um, and too many stupid mistakes, I have to say. It was just things that just shouldn't have happened. Give me an example of a mistake in track. So in the NCAAs, you finished second, right? You were the runner-up, could have been the champ, would have been the champ, second place, obviously tremendous silver medals in NCAAs, but you said you made too many mistakes. So what's a mistake you made? I just had a huge blunder in shot put. I mean, I'm talking about the shot was going nowhere, and it was just not executing 
It was simply that not executing and not focusing on what I was supposed to be focusing on. And that just happens from, you know, I was coming off a high jump. I had a decent high jump and I was just going straight into another event without regrouping, which is a terrible mistake for a multi because you go through so many events and you have to be able to drop that one event onto the next event. And I was just not focused enough going into the shot put. It's like if you almost, you step out the blocks in the hundred, if you, you trip because you didn't set correctly, let's say in football, if you drop the ball because you didn't, you like stumbled it and you were supposed to catch it and you're just supposed to, to score a touchdown. You know, it's just things that, that shouldn't have happened if you were just a little bit more focused. And so things like that cost you big in the multi. It's, it's all about points. It's all about execution. And so that really, the shot put really got me, honestly. It was just one of those moments where I just never have thrown that that short of a distance before. So it was a lot. Are you still second best in the country? Second <laughs> yes, best in the country. <laughs> but that's just how I am. I'm just like, I'm very critical of myself. So can you embrace being second best in the country or does it eat you that you should have been the first, the best, the champ, Michelle Atherley <laughs> hoisting, the, hoisting the gold? Yeah, it kind of eats at me. It does. Just because I know I could have been better. Like regardless, it's just, I could have been better, period. That's it. And I have, and I, I was. You are. No, no, no. You are. You I are. am. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I go into the trials and I'm extra focused. I'm like this. That was a practice round, period. And I, I hate to say that about the NCAA championships, but it was. It was like, okay, we're, we're leveling up. We're, we got to execute. And so I made sure not to make the same mistake. And that was that. Now, can you embrace the Olympic trials differently? Because you said if you're always more about the moment than the result, or you're always about your performance than the result, can you sit look at the Olympic trials and go, you know what? I can live with that one because I gave my best. Absolutely. I was looking to execute in certain events the way that I execute in practice. So just transferring that, knowing that I have the ability and then showcasing it when it needs, when it counts. Um, and I did that. And so I was happy with my performance. I felt like I gave it all in a way that was comfortable, not that I was giving everything that I absolutely had. I feel like I have so much more room to grow. In certain events, I didn't do as good as I, I know I could have. I just did a little bit below average, such as the high jump. But in other events, I blew my, my mind. I just didn't see myself running the 200 like that. But again, my coach saw it all I was doing in practice and she knew that I had that in me. So it was just a matter of executing. And then my performance, being able to do those things just made me feel satisfied with how I did and the way that I placed. And I came behind three of the best halves in the world right now. So I can't be upset. Like, those women are absolutely amazing. They've been at it for a really long time. And so, you know, I don't see it as a disappointment. I don't see it as a failure. I see it as a stepping stone, something to learn from and a catapult into this world champs season. We got to sort of clarify, right? You're at the Olympic trials as a collegiate athlete competing against professionals who do it for a living to make it to the Olympics, correct? Correct. Yes. So what is that stage like? You've competed at the highest level collegially. Can you frame mentally or emotionally what it was like going there, knowing what was riding on it, right? You're going to go to Tokyo. You're going to represent your country. This is, I'm sure, every any athlete's dream, like, especially in that sport, your sport. What was the environment like? It was great. It was amazing. Again, there's nothing like the Maltese. There, I'm telling you, of these other events, you might befriend some others you might speak to them you might not you know you have beef maybe <laughs> but the multis we're like we go through the same struggles the entire two days and so we're really close um really supportive and we all understand what each other is going through so we're you know encouraging so i think that environment in itself 
always makes it a little bit more welcoming. But I also felt like I belonged. I didn't feel nervous. I didn't feel like, oh my God, this is a big stage. I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, I hope I do well. I don't know. I just didn't question myself. I went out there as if it was another meet. And again, I felt comfortable. I just felt like I belonged. I felt like the way that I compete and the person that I am, there's no reason why I shouldn't be here. So the reason why I bring that up is, I guess, in your head, could you taste the Olympics? In your head, could you envision the Olympics? Could you envision making and competing, playing the national anthem, the golds being wrapped around Michelle Atherley's neck? Like, as a great athlete, had you had visions of that? Absolutely. I think even from when I did gymnastics, I would watch the Olympics nonstop. Every four years, I'm watching it. And so just seeing myself in that field allowed me to transfer it to track and field. And even at that meet, I saw myself, I was like, okay, if I place top three, I can go to the Olympics. And then, you know, and again, envisioning how that process would be and then going there and competing against some of the best in the world. It's just, if you go to the trials and you don't believe that you have that in you, then you're going for fun. And so, you know, I was going to, to compete and to represent Team USA. So that was the goal, of course. And to be able to have that vision is something that grew on me. You know, I never was a super, super confident athlete. But again, I always knew that the potential was there. I just needed other people to kind of support me in that process as well. And that's just the kind of athlete that I am. Who has helped you most with that confidence? Most definitely my club coach. He's like a father to me now. From the very beginning, he was like, okay, I see it. This is what you're going to be. You're going to get you to college, full scholarship. You're going to be a national champion. All of these things, you're going to go to Olympic trials. So he spoke it into existence before I even knew what the heck I was doing. So that definitely propelled me into this space where I can believe it myself. I can speak it. I can talk to you about it. And I can tell the world. And, and I can put myself in positions to be able to achieve those, those goals. So he's the one that thought you would do it all. Yeah, he did. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. And that's the guy from, that's the, that's the guy in Palm Beach. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's the guy you drove two and a half hours, state summers, weekends, whatever, that elevated your mental strength. Exactly, yes. Last thing on the Olympics, and then we'll move on to other stuff, because the behind you, we want to tell the whole journey is, did any of the professionals recognize you? Like, did, did any one of them say anything to you while you were there? Did you meet anyone there that has also sort of empowered you through the sport? You know what I mean? That you said you believed you belong, but if someone did or said something to you while you were there, reinforces that as well. I've competed with a lot of the ladies before. Some I haven't seen since college and, and some I've seen throughout my process. I went to Germany, so I represented Team USA before. So I've competed with some women there, but uh, Kendall Williams is an amazing athlete and she's a great, great person. Somebody I always looked up to coming into college because she's just a fantastic heptathlete. Um, she's also a kind person. And so um, I've always kind of had that rapport with her and being able to compete with her and speak with her on a very humble basis was really great. And I was going through the process with another HEP named Hope Bender. She's just a very kind person as well. I went to Germany with her. So we kind of have this friendship. Again, it's a competitive environment when you're in it, but at the same time, we're very supportive and we have relationships outside of the track as well. So that always helps. And we always believe in each other, no matter what we kind of know exactly what we go through on a daily basis through and throughout competition. So yeah, I think those two ladies were, were probably 
my closest <laughs> confidant. I imagine everything you've said so far about the tathlon and how you have to practice, the amount you have to practice, the amount you have to master, the work you put in, all of the sort of uh, training room time and rehabilitation that there must be, a, you guys understand each other, right? There, there's got to be a bond that aligns you. Absolutely. Yep, exactly. And I think no matter if you just meeting somebody or you've known them from a long time, you still have that understanding. So it's, it's a connection. It's um, something that you have in common. And it's something that always Wait, you hate the 800 too? I hate the 800 too. <laughs> Listen, I'll be sitting, we were sitting literally in the waiting room and we're staring at each other, like taking deep breaths. And we're like, oh my gosh, we really have to ride an 800 right now. And they're like, yes, I can't. <laughs> so it's like, we kind of go through that same, everybody reacts different, but it's still, you just find those people that you connect with and that share the similar kind of response to being a multi-athlete. All right. So you mentioned it before, gymnastics was your thing. It was, yes. So how'd you get into that? How, how did that become your thing? And was it hard to give up? Yeah, I did gymnastics for a little bit when I was a, a baby. I mean, when I was like really young, because my older sister who did track as well, she did it. And I was like, oh, I want to do that. And then I moved across the state and I just switched to a different sport. I think I did soccer for a really long time as well. But I went back into gymnastics after my father passed away and it just kind of grew on me. It was something that was very difficult and so challenging that I always found new things to kind of push me, keep it going. And then I saw those people, a lot of the gymnasts at the Olympics. And I was like, I want to do what they do. I want to be just like them. And so I always kind of put in that work and that practice until I, I reached the top of the capacity the gym could allow, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't an elite gymnastics gym by any means. And so, yeah, it, it was very difficult to give up. I kind of did a lot. I did high school sports and I did gymnastics for five hours um, every day and it was too much. So I had to choose and it was extremely difficult. I held on for as long as I possibly could. <laughs> and I was like, okay, so I, I know that I'm not going to go as far as I can in gymnastics. Let me explore all these other sports I can do in high school. And it was very, very difficult, but it set up an amazing base for me to be a multi-athlete. I think, I think it gave me the strength and the discipline to endure this incredible <laughs> event. And so I'm really thankful for it. And I still love it to this day. I love watching it. I love supporting the gymnasts who are in it as well. I read you were a high school uh, weightlifting champion. Oh, yes, I was. <laughs> well, how does that enter the picture? Yeah, so my cousin, she coached at my, my high school. So she has, she's the one who got me into track. She's the one who was like, okay, after weightlifting, you need to go to track and field season. And I was like, why? She's like, just try it out. You know, you're fast on the soccer field. Just see how you like it. But before then, yeah, weightlifting was a thing. We were like the athletes of the school, not gonna lie. We won um, a state or we came in second runner up, but with only a couple girls. And um, I won the my weight class. It was just a really good time with really good girls and the, the coaches pushed us. And it made me a little bit stronger for track and field as well. You said that was your cousin? Yeah, mm -hmm, my cousin. She coached weightlifting, and then that's how you got pushed in the track. It was, yeah. And then from that is where you met your club coach from your sister, and then that's when the whole thing takes off. Exactly. Bye-bye gymnastics. Bye-bye <laughs> gymnastics. All right, so now you mentioned uh, you mentioned your father passing away, and I wanted to talk about both of them, your mom and your dad. So your mom passed first, mm -hmm. your dad passed second. So how old were you when your mom passed? How old were you when your dad passed? I was a, a child when my mom passed. I was a very, very young. I think I was maybe two. So I don't have any memory of her, but my family, of course, told me tons of stories about her. I have lots of pictures. So I kind of built <laughs> who I thought she would be. Um, I'm told that I look like her, but I'm not, you know, I don't know. So yeah, um, 
my father passed away when I was 10 years old. So I have lots of memories of him. And I have a kind of a mural of him on my back that kind of sticks with me. <laughs> when did you get to tattoo him on your back? Uh, I think when I was 18. So I was in high school. So your dad remarried, correct? Yes, he did. Mm -hmm. And your stepmother took you in? Yeah, I was I was living with her. Um, after my birth mom passed away, then kind of moved in with her and we, I grew up with her as well. You had a big family, right? How many brothers or is it all sister? What, what, how many siblings? Yeah, I have a lot of siblings. I don't have any full siblings, but I have two brothers, one brother who's a, a stepbrother, and then I have two sisters. And you guys were all, and what's the age difference? A lot. Um, <laughs> I have my brother, oh my God, how old is he? This is bad. You see, this is bad. My brother's like in his 30s. Hey, 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 hey. Slow down. Watch it. I liked you up until then. Watch it. No, listen, I was, I'm like, you're like, no, 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 no. People will be able to see it. You're like 30s, like he's an old goat. Like, hey, you see this? And you don't see any of this? Next decade. Yeah. So <laughs> that's okay. I'll give you, I'll give you a pass. I'll give you a pass, Miss All American. <laughs> Great. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. So were you, in, were you growing up? Were you by yourself? I was with two brothers, uh, my stepbrother and my younger brother. Oh, you have a younger brother? I do. Yeah, he's two years younger than me. Okay, excellent. So do you have any lingering curiosity about your mom? Like, have you ever have you ever fought that at all? Or is it something you've been kind of at peace with? Yeah, it's something I'm at peace with. I've been around her side of the family a lot. Oh, not a lot, but more often now when I was younger. So I, she's Jamaican. So she was born in Jamaica. And that's kind of like a cultural connection that I, I have with her family. And I try to, to be in contact with them as much as I can. So that's as much uh, contact as I have with her. And then my sister, one of my sisters, she's her daughter as well. So that we had, she had the same mom. Um, and we're really close. She's the one who lived in West Palm. And the mural on, on your back with your dad, how much does that push you? It's there for a reason. So how much does that push you? A lot, right? It's just it's just a symbolic, like he always has my back. I kind of, he taught me a lot, even at a young age, mentally and like spiritually. So I feel like this is a reminder. It keeps me going. It, it reminds me to stop and think and um, kind of hone in on where my basis and where I came from. He was just a really kind, smart person. So somebody I admire a lot, even in the little time that I knew him. So this two-year track odyssey in high school, the, the plan pays off. In, in two years, you become a track athlete who is desired by colleges to come and perform for them, right? But why'd you pass Miami? The, you passed up Miami the first time. What happened? Okay, see what happened was... <laughs> come on, what's the story? What's the story um, we're going with these days? Yeah, no, so you get five official visits, right? And Miami was my very first official visit. And when I went, I was like, oh, I'm coming here, period. I don't need to go anywhere else. But I didn't get an offer my first time. So I explored my other options. I went to Auburn University and they offered me a full scholarship on the spot. And so I took it and I was like, I mean, I love the university. I love the teammates that I met. And so I committed. And then literally the day after I signed the papers, Miami comes in with the full scholarship. And I was like, I already signed. I'm sorry. It, so it was a, it's a timing thing. I definitely fell in love with Miami as soon as I went on that visit. And one of the, one, the girls that was on that visit, she committed to Miami. And so she ended up being my teammate the following year. But yeah, I went to Auburn my, my freshman year and then ended up transferring. So why didn't, why, either why didn't it work out or just why did you think it was the right thing to leave? It honestly didn't have to do with Miami in particular, it was just the program just wasn't for me. I was I wanted to be a multi-athlete. That's what I went to college for. And I ended up not doing that on my outdoor season. That's the main reason why I transferred was to be a multi-athlete. 
But in the indoors, your freshman year at Auburn, you didn't you qualified for NCAA's, right? I did. So I did the pentathlon as a pentathlon. Mm-hmm. But then in the outdoors, they didn't run you as a multi athlete. No, the program, like I said, it just didn't fit my goals, and so I just felt the need to find somewhere that did. So you called Coach Dean. He said, "Hey, I got to make good for you." I can't. That's illegal. You know, she get in trouble. Oh, they didn't have a transfer portal back no, then. They didn't, <laughs> yeah. So, so how did it, how did it come to be then? I actually went out back to my club coach and I was like, what do I do? Like, I feel like I need to make a change. And he convinced me that transferring was the best option. And so that's what I did. And kind of once I made that clear to the Auburn staff, they released me and I was was able to communicate with other schools and Miami was my first option. And and so that's where I went. Did you ever joke about it with West Coach Dean? Like, hey, you could have had me the first time. Slow poke. Yep. (laughs) All the time. She knows. Yeah, you should offer me, <laughs> but you spent five years proving her wrong. Yeah, you know, um, what happened was supposed to happen. I don't regret my time at Auburn at all. I met amazing people. I'm still friends with the people that came in with to this day, like travel. We, we meet up all the time. So I loved my time there with the people, but I'm very grateful for my track and field career and where I am now to have transferred to Miami. It was written that when you came to Miami, you kind of said, said or had in your head, I will be an ACC champion. Oh, yeah. For sure. That was my goal. Not that it was like a, you know, oh, this is what I'm going to achieve. It was like a statement. It was something that I knew was going to happen, something that I was very, very confident could happen because I had experienced the SEC atmosphere and I competed there. I knew that I can come into the ACC and be just as competitive. Coach Dean set us up great with our season to be able to see the schools that we would see at nationals. And so I, I went to those ACC championships ready and, and really able to perform and be competitive. Do you have a tattoo that says my ambition is my weaponry? I do on my forearm. When did you get that? And why were those words significant to you? Yeah, it's actually from a song. Honestly, it was just a line. Probably a song I haven't listened to. <laughs> it probably not. It's old. It's from, you know, she's not really popping like that right now. But it was just that one line that stuck with me. And I got it actually right before I left Auburn. And it was just like, it was a time where I, I knew what my potential was. and I knew what I wanted to accomplish. And so that's what pushed me to be confident enough and to be brave enough to to switch schools and to switch my entire life back to Florida to an area I never even lived or grew up in. So yeah, I don't know those words that even to this day, I'm just like, okay, in order to be confident in myself, I have to have ambition. And then that's what pushes me to be competitive and to go out there and know that I belong like I did at uh, Olympic trials. So would you describe yourself as someone who is ultra competitive? No, I'm not. <laughs> I know it's weird, but I'm, I'm like, Competitive with myself, I guess. I got that me versus me mentality, for sure. So you just said it gave me the mindset to go do what I wanted to do. Did you mean that specifically or in the big pick? Meaning, like, did you know, did you have very specific goals of what you wanted to accomplish as a track athlete? I just knew I wanted to be successful. Um, I knew that my skill level could go up. I knew that I could perform at a higher level than what I was. So me being able to improve, me being able to compete at the professional level, that right there is my goal. And so that's what I I aim for. And my my ambition is to be that good, so good that I end up, you know, just being one of the best (laughs) by chance. And that started where, especially because you came into the sport late, 
Yeah. And, and growing up where I did, I was, I just happened to be the best track athlete because I just, there wasn't a lot of competition. So what I was doing just happened to be the best. And I think that's where I took that mentality into college where I do what I, what I have to do. I do what I can. And if it's good enough, then it's good enough. Coming from a smaller, I mean, Port Charlotte's not, I mean, it's, it's smaller than Miami, it's smaller than Naples, et cetera. Right. But if you're the best in a small place, when you got to the bigger place, Auburn or Miami, because you were good, did you have a belief or because you were from a smaller place, did you have to prove something to yourself to know that you belonged? I had to prove to myself. I had to adjust to the, to the atmosphere a little bit. And I think my work ethic, just the person that I am, like the, the type of athlete that I am, the way that I learn, the way that I absorb things and the, the way that I love to kind of get better. I think that's what I, I love about the sport. And that's why I picked the multis because there's so much challenge. There's so much to improve on, so much space to grow. Um, and that's where my bread and butter is, is, is knowing, okay, here's my challenge and here's where I need to, what I need to do to get there. And so I, I took that into my, that mindset into this, you know, fresh new world of college. And I said, okay, I'm going to take whatever they tell me to do. And I'm going to do it to the best of my abilities and grow and learn as much as I can. Hi, Hurricane fans. Joe Zagacki here for UPS. Your customers want more from your business. You've got to make more happen, whether they're in Miami or on the other side of the world, globally or locally. UPS is building solutions to help businesses give their customers exactly what they want. More made easy. UPS, official logistics company of Miami Athletics. All right, so we, we talked about the tattoo on your Instagram account. It says M-O-M-B-A, Mamba, right? Or Ma, it's pronounced it for me. Yeah, Mamba. Yeah, but not not Kobe's Mamba. But I'm sure it's a play on Kobe's Mamba, right? It is, yeah, yeah, yeah. What is your Mamba mentality? M-O-M-B-A, not M-A-M-B-A. So I just, like, tweaked it a little bit, just giving that um, miss I do it all, I guess, <laughs> change to it. But it's really that internal drive, I guess, that pushes me a little bit past, you know, my threshold. And it's what's necessary to be competitive at this level. There is something in your head, in a lot of great athletes' head, that's a little sick, right? Like, that, that you, have to, you have to embrace the pain. There's no, because otherwise you would just stop training or stop working, stop trying to be the best, right? You embrace the grind. Yeah, you just got to do what you got to do. If it's if this somebody says in order to win a million dollars, you got to do X, Y and Z, you do X and Y and Z. So you should be on like one of those reality shows, Survivor or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> right. Yeah, Ooh, that would be. Mm. So you said there's a drive to get better, mm -hmm. right? That, that's kind of what pushes you. There's always something more. So do you think you're the best version of yourself now as a track athlete? Or is there more? Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. I, I left the Olympic trials knowing, happy, because I knew there was so much more room to grow. I was like, oh, okay, this is what I can do, and I still feel like I can do more? Perfect. You know, it's, it's the most gratifying feeling knowing that even that performance that wasn't your best yielded such a high reward. And so knowing that I can go out there and I go into next season and be like, oh, okay, I know exactly what I needed to improve on here, here, and here. Let me do that. Plus, you know, keep where I was the past season. And it's going to be crazy. It's going to be something that um, even I probably won't even expect. 
So I got two things for you on that. So knowing that you said I did well, even though I didn't do my best. So inside of that has to be some element of frustration, no? And see, you, you was talking about before, you know, oh, you got second at nationals and you still weren't happy. No, like I have, again, these higher expectations of my performance because I, I've seen what I can do. In practice, it's not just for practice. I practice like I'm going to compete, you know. I break stuff down. I'm able to learn. But then once I do that, I try to execute as if I'm in a competition. And that's how you get better. And that's how you're able to do it when it really matters. And so showing myself that I can do that in practice, my coaches see I can do it. My coaches believe in me. They're like, there's no reason why you shouldn't do this performance. And so being able to do that in competition is, is the ultimate goal. And yeah, that's where I strive to be. Did I read you out? You had your first job interview? Well, not yet. I, it's actually tomorrow. So I got called in for my first job interview. Can you give away where or just what what field? How about that? Yeah, it's HR. Oh, nice. Okay. So knowing that and now knowing more from talking to you, you're not done with track though. No, I'm not. But <laughs> you got to elaborate. So what is next for you in track then? Because you mentioned before world championships. You've talked about being a professional. I obviously know there's other avenues to be a professional, mostly outside of the States, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, in your sport. So are those things you're going to pursue? And did you are you going to discuss that in the interview? Like, hey, look, I'm gonna need some time off here. I'm kind of good at what I do. Like, can I get some extra time off? I was looking at all was like, okay, so what are the vacation times, the sick days, you know, <laughs> just to make sure it's possible. But I mean, I'm just gonna try my best because unfortunately, track and field is not like baseball. It's not like football. It's not like basketball. It's a struggle. It's a grind, especially for athletes that are not sprinters. Those are the sports exactly so to be a multi-athlete is is a struggle it's a struggle bus but you know it's possible so it's not you don't do it for the money per se you do it for the passion and so i'm here for that so what is it where do, where do you go compete so first off i have i'm staying with my coach so that's why i'm living in miami i chose to stay here and train because i love my coaches they're great and so i have to find an agent somebody who is right for me somebody who can help me throughout the circuit and they're the ones who will plan meets plan my schedule get me into meets you have to talk to the organizers of the meets to get you in sometimes the meet organizers will fly you out and pay for your expenses sometimes you have to do it out of pocket so really you go to the meets that will one get earn you money to stay you stay afloat <laughs> and then to earn you points so that you can be accomplished on the world stage the organizations kind of rank athletes based on how many points they have based on their performances and the type of meets that they go to so it's a lot of strategy and putting together a season especially one for a multi because it's a little bit different we have another system of points that goes towards specifically our multi-events and so it's a lot to put together i'm very lucky to have the coach that i have because he's really invested in this event in particular and is really great at guiding me through the process because again <laughs> i'm just as dear dear eyed as i was entering college going into the professional realm so i'm just trying to make my the events are where in the states out of the states or both overseas all overseas oh most multi-events will be overseas you get to see the world yeah. So that's, I'm very excited. I love to travel. Again, my, my parents are from the Caribbean. So I love going around the world and seeing new cultures. So I'm excited for that. We're going to attempt to work full time in a certain job, whatever this is, hopefully it's this job or any other job and train and compete. Yeah. I might have to be part-time honestly, because again, if you heard my schedule, right. So will you be on the same schedule training professionally or does it change or is it more intense? Is it the, or is the same basic concepts? 
the beautiful thing about being a professional athlete is I can make my own schedule. Of course, it's going to have to adjust for when the coaches are available, but they're more flexible with me. And so I will definitely be practicing mostly in the afternoons, probably the entire afternoon. So if I have to work in the morning, then that's what I have to do. And then my days off would maybe correspond with um, the training cycle. And that's what I would have to, again, negotiate with whatever job I get. Go into the interview. And here's here's how you're going to get this job, all right? Bring in all of the awards that you have gathered from these events. 2018 ACC Championship Heptathlon, 2018 Outdoor ACC Team Championship, 2019 Indoor NCAA Pentathlon Champion, 2019 ACC Women's Field Performer, the Indoor MVP, the 2019 ACC Scholar-Athlete, 2021 ACC Field Performer of the Year, runner-up at the NCAAs and fourth place at the U.S. Track Olympic Trials. Put all those on the table (laughs) at that job interview and say, you're not going to give me any time off? (laughs) I think that'll work. I'll try it out, and I'll let you know, for sure. You need me to carry the bag? If you want me to carry the bag that carries all that stuff for you, I'll do it. And I'll just stand stand on the street. I'll pay your your parking, uh, you know, make sure sure when it runs out, I just put in another dollar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'll work. I can do that. Oh, and also tell me that you're a six-time first-team All-American, a 3.85 GPA, and you had an undergraduate degree and a dual master's. And if they don't hire you, then you can call me in. <laughs> oh, man, you're right. You know, sometimes I'd be forgetting, not going to lie. I really do forget sometimes of all of those. By the way, did I miss anything? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> not going to lie. All right. I don't know. Lots of MVPs, lots of records. Brag, brag. I told Stella, brag. I'm the worst at bragging, literally the worst. All right. I'm not a good bragger either. All right. So here's here's one for you from a professional standpoint. I come to the house. You have all the awards laid out. Which one do you walk me to first? Mm, I mean, my national championship, of course. <laughs> of course. Now, which of those has the best story to it? I would have to say, honestly, the 2019 Scholar Athlete of the Year. Because in 2018, I had a GPA of like two point something. It was rough. And so the climb up, I was so proud of. It was so unexpected. And to just know that like I could put that much effort into my academics really meant a lot. I was not like a brainiac coming out of high school or anything like that. I just feel like I'm a dedicated person. (laughs) And so that um, reflecting through my academics was really special and something I was really happy about. And then you get awarded that because of your accomplishments and your recognition on the track as well. So having that good of a season, just topping it off with that was really amazing. Now, that's like the, the end of the rainbow, right? We, we go, we compete, we accomplish all those things. But is there, a, is there a specific meet maybe that in and of itself had some drama to it? You know what I mean? That you could relay that, man, Josh, you wouldn't believe. So, you know, this event, this time against this school. I would have to say the team, the team win in 2018 outdoors. They always come down to the four by four. It always does that. And I got thrown into the high jump and I won it somehow. I don't know how I won that event whatsoever at ACC's. It was just a whirlwind. Individual high jump you won? Yeah, it was a, it was a whirlwind. So I did the multi, I went and did the, the high jump right after. And then I did the open hurdles. And then we went into the four by four and we like, we have to win this if we're going to win the championship. Whoa, 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 whoa. You ran, you did the heptathlon and then did three or four individual events. Yes. Holy smokes. <laughs> That's typically what happens at ACC championships. So it's, it's always crazy. Every time it's crazy. <laughs> so who's the, who's the, like, I know for football, Florida State's the enemy. Who's the enemy in track? It goes back and forth. Florida State is always up there. Always. It's like Florida State and Duke. 
we'll go. It depends on the year, but usually always for the state. Like they're the team. People in football hate the Gators. So like, is, is, is it the same way in track or like, how's, how do people like the Gator? We don't. Good, Good <laughs> answer. Difficult. Yeah, it's, it's difficult, though, because we're not in the same conference, so we don't see them as often. Right, of course. That's what makes it more special when you beat them. Did you, <laughs> did you beat them? Did you beat them? Exactly. We only see them at nationals, right? We only compete them as a team. Yeah. So Florida State, so like when it's Florida State week or Florida State weekend, you're amped. Yeah, it's always a good time. <laughs> okay. The one thing we didn't discuss is somewhere along the way early at your time in Miami, you suffered an injury and the doctor told you you may never run or was it not again or just not that year? He was saying I couldn't do what I do anymore. Like there's a high possibility I couldn't compete at the level that I'm competing. At all? Nothing? Yeah, at all. Because I was a multi, I was, yeah. Uh, he was like, hmm. So how was it? How, how did you take, how'd you take that? So it was my, it was the year that I transferred. So I did indoor 2017 and then outdoor. Well, by the way, uh, wait, wait. You, so you did that your first year in Miami and you were the champ. Indoor champion, pentathlon, set a record, right? First yeah. year at Miami? Yeah. It's getting that. I just want to make sure everyone knows that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I was feeling great going Brag, in. Michelle. Oh, I want to hear you brag right now. Brag right now. Tell everybody how great you were. It was okay. <laughs> what? It's difficult. Okay. But you know, I said I said I was going to be an ACC champ, and I came to Miami, and I went indoor season. I was going. Showed up and showed out. I sure did. Yep. That was the goal. <laughs> so was this a routine thing or your knee was bothered or was your knee, right? Yeah. So your knee was like, so you get to the doctor, however you get there for whatever reason, he tells you no more. And you go to, and you say, what you feel, what you think, what at first I was like, it was like, you know, when you're getting, you're anticipating news, your body gets hot. Something I was like, okay, I know he's not going to say what he thinks to say, please. He says it. And I, was, I sit there for a second. I look around and then I look at my PT Jeff and I said that's not an option so how do we move forward and the doctor stops pauses for a little bit and he goes on and he's saying okay well you have this injury this is to this extent but if you do rehab you know you can do it's going to be an extensive rehab it was a few months and so I looked at my PT and I was like let's put together a plan because it's not an option it's not it was not it didn't cross my brain any curse words any curse words come out no I was pretty calm and collected I was like oh okay so next <laughs> So what was the injury? How intense was it? And how, I guess, how intense was the rehab? Yeah, so it was in my platella tendon, basically that hard part that's right below your kneecap. And it was torn in several places. So it didn't rupture. But again, if doctor said, if you continue to do what you are doing, you know, you can never play sports again. And I was like, oh, that's a high risk. But I was like, what, what are the options moving forward? How can I prepare myself to be in a position um, where I can compete again? And and do it to the best of my ability. So um, I got a PRP injection, which is uh, take your red blood cells platelets, and they cycle it out, and then they re-inject those into the injury site to promote healing. And so that's what I got. It was very, very painful. <laughs> and from there, I just did extensive rehab. I had to learn how to run correctly again. Um, I can't even tell you how many pool workouts I did. And in the Ultra G, I mean, it was... It was a long, long process, but I, this happened in March or April. Um, it was during my first multi-event of my time in Miami, my first ever HEP, actually, my outdoor. I didn't even complete it. Um, I was in the high jump, the second event of the meet, and I couldn't jump. I couldn't get off the floor. And I was like, I don't know what's happening. My, my leg is literally not letting me jump. And so that's when my coach shut me down, and he's like, okay, something's wrong. So, you know, I went to the doctor's. 
found out how to move forward, worked with the PT. He's still to this day, one of my closest friends and somebody, my confidant, somebody who I rely on heavily still to the, for physical therapy. And so it's just been a process ever since then. I think to this past year was the first solid year without any serious, you know, setbacks from that injury. So during that time, did you ever get really down or did you just attack it and said, I'm getting through this? No, it was very frustrating because I couldn't run for a while, right? So I had to literally relearn how to work that muscle and at the same time, be careful because I didn't get surgery. If I got surgery, it would have been a longer process. I never would have made it to the next season. And so being sure that I was healing the tendon without overworking it was our priority. And it was really, really frustrating because certain movements would kill it. Like to this day, I don't, I don't heavy squat. I don't do full squats. And so I've had to adjust my entire regimen to make up for, you know, that, that just little bit of weakness, but I've strengthened it in other places to make up for it. And so that's been my priority. It's just a different way of approaching track and field, but it was, it was a very, very difficult process. I, it's frustrating because some days it would just flare up and I couldn't do anything. And I actually had to switch high jump legs. So that was in itself was a very difficult task because it's like trying to write cursive with the other hand, your unnatural hand. And it was it was long. It was tedious. It was frustrating, but it was all worth it because I knew that I could do it. I knew that I was going to be a better competitor for it. And I just make sure every single day that I am preparing myself to compete and to practice as best as I can and be as healthy as I can. So obviously you made it back for the next indoor and you were the champ. I was not, that was 2018. So that was one of my most proudest, I think, indoor seasons because I didn't start running until like October, like on the grass. And I had to learn, literally had to replant my feet onto the field. I didn't start jumping or anything like that until, I don't know, maybe November or something. So we compete in January. So it was, it was a tight spot I was in. And I think I finished maybe sixth, but I was like, I made it to nationals. I was one of the top 16. I was top six from the 16 people who made it in the whole entire nation. So that was something that I was very proud of, something that I didn't see myself being just a couple months ago. So yeah, that was one of my most proudest moments in my entire career. But then the outdoor, you're the champ that year. Mm -hmm. So you were like, all right, squash the injury. I'm back. I'm good to go. (laughs) Yeah. You can brag about that if you want. Uh, maybe tomorrow. <laughs> and then you go, wait, so you go outdoor 18, then indoor 19, back-to-back champs? For ATC. I was just an indoor national champion. Just the, wait, you say that again? I was just the indoor national champion? Yes, I just clarified. <laughs> that, supersedes AC, that supersedes the ACC championship. It does. <laughs> you started here and then you just took it up another level. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're going to switch gears here. You mentioned before during the pandemic, time off, et cetera, that you had a lot of time to inspire yourself. You also found a way to get engaged and inspire others. It was a very challenging time in our country. And you came back and did a lot of things on campus to impact change. Were the things that happened in the summer in our country, the unfortunate events around Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, I mean, that video is grotesque. Is it those things that sparked you, that propelled you? Uh, Had it been lingering prior? Why did you decide to get so uh, actively engaged? It was something, tragedies that happen unjustly was something that got talked about in a, in a very vacuumed community. And then watching it kind of come to the forefront of not only national news, but conversations with my peers was 
something that I felt like I needed to be a part of in the most positive way possible. I remember very vividly watching the entire process of Trayvon Martin happen, unfold before my eyes as a, as a young adult. And I just didn't understand. And nobody was there to help me understand, particularly in the community. And so I wanted to be that. I wanted to be that support. I wanted to be that person who engages and inspires conversation for student athletes at the University of Miami. And I wanted to push my peers to think harder about the experiences of African-Americans in the United States and around the world. So not to just to think about themselves or look at things that happen on TV or um, on social media, but to really internalize, okay, let me attach these experiences that I'm watching to those experiences of my peers and people that I know, people who are my friends and my family. Also, what inspired me was watching my fellow student athletes express how hurt and traumatized they were from these events happening again and again and again, and knowing that they needed a space to talk about it and a space to express themselves and to discuss how history impacts our current present situation. So that was my main motivator in bringing it to the University of Miami because it existed in other universities, but why not here? And so, yeah, that's what kind of propelled me. And then, of course, probably one of the most like gut-wrenching situations was Bri Breonna Taylor. It was just something that really, you know, brings about an emotion within me and a senseless murder. It's just, yeah, I don't know. Lost for words. And so, but this stuff was happening while you were off campus. A lot of this was happening when everyone was home. So were you talking with friends, peers, et cetera, during your time away? Did you think when you got back, you were going to have a call to action? I know the school also, I believe, had like a town hall meeting for everyone when you got back. So what sort of ignited in you beyond the conversation? You know, you started two different groups on campus. I mean, a lot of athletes got very engaged. A lot of people got, you know, very engaged. But where did it sort of set itself inside of you that action will be taken when I step foot back on campus? Yeah, I saw it happening at other universities. So again, track and field world is not that big. So we communicate a lot. Um, there was a group chat started with hundreds and hundreds of student athletes from D1 to D3, from all types of different sports, just expressing their experiences within their university, within their coaching staff, in their administration, within their teams. Can I interrupt for one second? You guys want to ask this. People won't be seeing this, but they'll hear it. They know you and they know me. I'm a white male. You're a young black female, right? And the reason why I ask these questions, A, it is of interest to me personally, but I also want people to understand, right? If you don't say it, we don't understand. If, you, if it's not spoken, how do we know? How do we change? How do we sympathize? How do we empathize? So you just said other experiences at other schools or other things that people were going through, because as tragic as the murders are, were, et cetera, I would imagine that's the spotlight stuff. Yes. You're a black female athlete. There are black male athletes. I'm sure there are things that were happening, have happened to you that don't get talked about, but we should know about. So what were some of those conversation points and pieces? Yeah, it was mostly the way that authority figures treated student athletes of color. Student athletes would express how sexist and racist maybe their coaches were, how their administrative staff would treat teams differently. Um, how the recruiting process always was affected by the way coaches would interact with Black males and female student athletes. And so just hearing the different stories from different places reflected a lot of the history that happened in those places. And it opened my eyes to, okay, people are experiencing this everywhere. And it's a daily occurrence, right? So I think what, what happens, what my interpretation from hearing others is that 
okay, this happens on a daily basis, but it's suppressed because it's seen as normal. Nobody asks questions about it. And nobody who is not a part of the African-American community, of course. And then it's also shut down by those in power. Well, and the, I think the other thing too, Michelle, is, and the reason why I brought it up is there's no way to compare to the things that took the news, but it, they're not newsmaking events. Exactly. Right. So that's what, obviously what happened, people being murdered tragically and unjustly is newsworthy. But to change, for all, it's all to change, we have to know what's happening to you every day because that's what everybody, that's what people live. Yeah. And that's what people use, coin that term systematic racism because it's in the everyday processes of the American system. It's, it's how you drive, when you drive, when you go to the grocery store, when you interact with other humans in different settings. And so I'm sure all of these individuals who got tragically murdered experienced these same systematic racial prejudices on, on a daily basis. And it just, their murders were another form of it. And so a more tragic and a more heartbreaking form of it. Um, and unfortunately, they lost their lives because of it. Somebody had to literally die, leave this earth, in order for people to realize, oh, hey, the way that somebody treated this other person was wrong because of the color of the skin. And so using that same logic, we kind of attack these other things that happen throughout different systems, whether it's in schools, in jail systems, in the education system, things like that. I think it's, it's all the same conversation in different ways. And for people to not feel offended, for people to be a part of correcting these injustices without having to personally be attached to them is the biggest struggle. And so that's why I feel like this group was really important to voice people's opinions, to voice people's experiences, and to bring those connections to our white peers and people of uh, different races. So that was my, my ultimate goal. But truly at the base of it was to give a support system for um, African-American students and Black students at the University of Miami, student athletes. So what did you find when you started to gather, when you started to meet, ha however you started to congregate, what did you find when people started talking? When the athletes, the black athletes started talking, what did you hear? People had a lot to say <laughs> and people had a lot of, this, of similar experiences. You, you have individuals who either were taught to rep repress these experiences, taught that these, these were normal or taught that this doesn't happen to me, so it doesn't happen to other people. So um just basically surprised. And people, again, had a lot to say. They just had a lot to share. It kind of brought people together, I would, I would say. It created a little bit of a community and similar efforts. And then we paired with a lot of organizations on campus whose goals were to aid the experiences of African-American students on campus. And so we were able to kind of bridge that gap between student athletes and students on campus. That was one of our, one of my biggest, my proudest, proudest moments of of this entire organization was bringing the community together in a bigger setting um, and finding that kind of support system through academics and just regular students who, who are not student athletes. Yeah, I think people reacted really well and were excited to participate. What don't we see? Ooh, <laughs> what don't we see? We, and I mean we meaning me. I, I believe I am understanding and sympathetic. I have certainly never walked in your shoes because I can't. But I'm sure there's a lot I don't know still, but people need to know and I want them to know. So I'm, I want you to, to tell them. Yeah, people don't see the ignorance. <laughs> people don't see the racially motivated comments. People don't see the degrading kind of questions that happen to student athletes, particularly, right? Male and female? Yes, male and female. And 
people don't, you, you don't see the dehumanization of particularly Black male student athletes and the expectations that follow them both from their perspective sports into the classroom. It's just kind of barbaric the way that um, student athletes are treated as not people and not humans, but rather just these things that make exciting entertainment um, and are good for nothing else. Some that happens more often than you think. Is that why you also got involved? Because I, f- I found this to be very unique and powerful that you were involved in starting an organization that was geared at helping black male student athletes. Yeah, I found it very interesting that when I first began the Black Student Athlete Alliance, that it was difficult to get Black male students in positions of leadership, into positions that were primarily occupied by white individuals, white males. And that's because there's this idea that their sport is their entire identity. And so kind of mixing that with leadership positions and the experience of African-Americans, I think will open a space for conversation and open the minds of individuals to look at themselves as more than athletes. Because when you can look at yourself, you know, step away and look at what you're doing and what your potential is, it's a little bit easier. And there's just a lot of generational trauma that comes with Black male student athletes because they are the sole breadwinners. They might have a lot of pressure from family. They might, you know, have to make it or else. They might not have been taught any life lessons such as financial literacy or um, any history, any cultural background, stuff like that. So the Black Student Athlete Alliance definitely touched on all of those. We had financial literacy, we had the Black experience, we had Black history. And so just combining all of this knowledge to make the individual a little bit more aware and a little bit more active in their life outside of sport, I think was pretty effective. And that was the main goal of, of that program was to put is to push um, Black male student athletes to think outside of a box and to address any discrepancies or, I guess, experiences that hinder their ability to, to make the most of their college experience. How will you stay connected with this cause now that you're not at school? I will kind of be like a community partner, more or less. Um, I still want to advise the president, the, the following president, um, and those ex- executive members just because I feel it's like my brainchild, it's my baby. (laughs) So I feel so invested in making sure that people are actually affected, that the programs are helping and that people are are feeling like they're getting something out of it and that it serves student athletes as much as possible. Were you behind the barber shop at the U? I was. So I'm trying to bring that college experience that we see on TV. And because it's so unique, I mean, there's nothing like being a student athlete at all. Before you go far, we probably should tell people what it was. Oh, sorry. Yeah. That's my fault. That's my fault. Bad yeah. job on me. Yeah. Barbershop Talks at the U was for these Black male student athletes to gather with community partners. So we had educators from the university. We had professional athletes that were alumni, such so as DJ Dallas. And they kind of just came together and was led into a conversation that allowed them to speak about their experiences as a student athlete, their journey getting here, and how their identity as a Black male and you know, you might not just think, oh, yeah, I'm a black male. This is what I identify as. But that's how people perceive you. Right. And so are these individuals. And so understanding that and bringing that into the forefront of a conversation, I think, allow them to connect and get great advice moving forward. It's, it's a hard road to connect if you don't have any leadership, if you don't have any support. And so kind of building that and giving 
this population something, anything to rely on, especially outside of their everyday, this grind that calls for your sport only is really, really important. And it also, I think it opened up the eyes of some of the administrators who were there, who got to speak about their experiences and listen to student athletes speak about, you know, what they've been through and, and how they interpret being a student at the University of Miami. Um, so again, it builds this community. It builds a, a road for conversation. And yeah, I just feel like it's important. I feel like it's effective and I hope so. It's not for my benefit whatsoever, right? I'm a, I'm a Black female. I, I don't belong in the space, but I, I just built it to serve those so then last thing, and this probably doesn't, you mentioned something before that's just ringing in my ears about sort of the barbaric nature of, of how male athletes are treated in college and that they're just there for, for entertainment and money, so to speak, the way the, the business of sport is. So I imagine you are someone who would champion, will champion, and is behind everything that's happened recently with NIL, name, image, likeness, et cetera. I am. I'm also somebody who believes in proper preparation and <laughs> very accurate structure. So I'm, I'm interested to see how effective this system will withstand the amount of popularity of change that's about to happen with all student athletes. But I think in particular, I see this as an extreme benefit for Black female student athletes, because we don't occupy these big name sports, right? These big name um, universities who make extreme money from these revenue sports. And so without that highlight in, in TV and popularity, without any ability to make money off of our own face and name, it's just, we're here for fun. And you get tossed into this professional realm with absolutely no guidance in, in a structured system of drafting and support. So I think that this is extremely beneficial for those student athletes who otherwise would be left with going into a job that they may or may not be prepared for without a resume because they unable to get internships because they're occupied with their sport. You know, it's just so many hindrances that I think this will alleviate for student athletes who need income, but more so to promote themselves into a professional realm um, to help them, you know, just build a brand. So you see that you see this as much as a money play as because of either lack of opportunity or lack of time that this opens the doors entrepreneurially to understand business or business settings so that they're better prepared once they get there because at the sport ends they are transferring themselves into the real world. Exactly. And especially if you want to be a professional athlete, you need to build a brand. And the only brand that you were able to build before was attached to the school. So once you're no longer attached to there, what else do you have? You have yourself and you and maybe if you went viral with some dancing videos or something like that. But other than that, you you have nowhere else to market yourself. And I think this is an amazing opportunity for these athletes to take advantage of in a smart way. And I hope, I really hope that they're getting the guidance that they need um, and asking the questions that they need in order to make it as successful as possible. All right, Michelle, that's a wrap. Ah, yes. <laughs> did, did, I, did I tire you out? It was like the heptathlon of interviews. <laughs> No, I, it's great. I love talking about stuff. I love discussing things. So it was great. Uh, you know, and you made great questions. You know, the conversation was great. So thank you. 